Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. So I am so glad you're here with me today for Stand By My Servants, Episode 7 on the teachings of President Oaks. But I'm going to, I don't want to say cheat, that's such a horrible word, but I'm going to fudge just a little bit on teachings because there are a couple stories I'd like to tell about President Oaks to illustrate a couple of points. Now here's one. These men always seem to be at the right place at the right time. You know, think of uh, President Russell M. Nelson called as a prophet, seer, and revelator for the church in 2018, and then in 2020, we have a global pandemic, and it just so happens that a world-renowned medical doctor is the president of the church during that time. Heber J. Grant, the perfect man at the time to be the prophet during the Great Depression. He was a, a financial guru of sorts that knew how to navigate his way through those experiences. Uh, George Albert Smith, the kindliest of the prophets, was the president of the church during World War II and was instrumental in the church, blessing thousands of lives in war-torn Europe as goods and services were provided. And it just goes on and on like that. And although the story I'm about to tell you doesn't take place when President Oaks is in the first presidency, it actually transpires when he's just the president of BYU. But once again, I think it just illustrates that point that these men have been instrumental. In fact, they've been instruments in the hand of the Lord being right where they're supposed to be at the exact right time and right place. So here's the setting. It's the spring of 1975. And officials from the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare claim, among other things, that BYU's dress and worthiness standards violated a federal education law. Now, President Oaks, the president of BYU, responded by saying that he did not oppose the principles of equality and social justice, but when bureaucrats focus more on those topics than education itself, and educate, then educators will find themselves surrendering vital institutional controls to government workers who may lose the sight of real purpose of universities. President Oaks opposed the idea that private universities, which receive not a dollar of, of federal money, shouldn't be subject to federal regulations, especially regarding every decision, activity, facility, educational policy, and communication. Doing so eliminated much of the difference between public and private universities and squeezed out some of the schools from existence. And then President Oaks said, we as the largest private university in the nation will be a leader in the fight to stop this. And as the president of the American Association of Presidents of Independent Colleges and Universities, President Oaks boldly led the fight against bureaucratic overreaching. But the battle wasn't over. The second principle, the second and principal legal challenge to the school, BYU, began not long after that. It was in July of 1976, a young woman tried to rent in an apartment in an off-campus complex approved by BYU to house students. Like BYU dormitories, the complex was divided into separate sections for men and women. When she learned that the women's portion was full, she petitioned to stay on the men's side and she was denied. Seeing this as, a, as sex discrimination, she turned to the government and the case made its way all the way up to the U.S. Justice Department, which sent FBI agents to investigate. Now, the, BYU, the, sorry, the Justice Department wrote to BYU and 30 landlords in the area threatening to sue if the school's divided housing policy didn't change over the next month. One magazine reported that Brigham Young University officials first learned about the suit from landlords who received the letter before they did, and they were shocked. It seemed that big government was trying to butt in and destroy the unique religious orientation of the university. Once again, President Oaks and his administration, backed by church leaders who made up the school's board of trustees, refused to be run over. As a church-sponsored institution, Brigham Young University teaches 
the highest standards of Christian morality and expects its students and faculty to live up to those standards, he wrote to the Justice Department. And the First Amendment guarantees a free exercise of religion that protect our right to teach these moral principles and to make them part of the requirements of enrollment and employment in the educational community. Now, this matter grew into nationwide controversy, and eventually BYU and the Justice Department worked out an agreement that allowed the school to maintain its housing standard for students, but not non-students. And I'm sure we were like, okay, that's, that's great. Anyway, President Oaks just had a great impact. And there was even another case brought forth by the IRS, and I won't even get into that. But President Oaks was on the front lines as an attorney battling these issues with the U.S. government, who it seemed wanted to come in and change and alter some of the core principles that Brigham Young University was experiencing in the 1970s. Now, Elder Holland said of this, Dallin Oaks was the best man in the church to deal with those issues, and he was remarkably successful. He was a very strong president, and it's a pivotal chapter in BYU's history. By the way, that all comes from In the Hands of the Lord, The Life of Dallin H. Oaks by Richard E. Turley. I just recommend that book to everyone. So when it comes to teachings of President Oaks, one of the uh, stories I'd like to share are just some of his early experiences as a priesthood leader. In fact, this first one comes from when he was in the stake presidency in Chicago. He was called as a counselor in that stake presidency, and he said, one of our first stake presidency meetings, our stake president made a proposal that our new stake center be built in a particular location. And President Oak said, I immediately saw four or five good reasons why that was the wrong location. And when asked for my counsel, I opposed the proposal, giving each of those reasons. The stake president wisely proposed that each of us consider the matter prayerfully for a week, and then we'll discuss it further in the next meeting. President Oak says, almost perfunctorily, I prayed about the subject and immediately received a strong impression that I was wrong, that I was standing in the way of the Lord's will, and that I should remove myself from opposition to it. He says, needless to say, I was restrained and promptly gave my approval to the proposed construction. And incidentally, the wisdom of constructing the stake center at that location was soon evident even to me. And my reasons to the contrary turned out to be short-sighted. And I was soon grateful to have been restrained from relying on those feelings. On another occasion, as the president of BYU, he told the story that he picked up a pen in his office at BYU to sign a paper that had been prepared for his signature. He said, this is something I did at least a dozen times a day. And that document committed the university to a particular course of action that we had decided to follow. All the staff work had been done and all appeared to be in order, but as I went to sign the document, President Oak said, I was filled with such negative thoughts and forebodings that I put it to one side and asked for the matter to be reviewed again. It was, and within a few days additional facts came to light, which showed that the proposed course of action would have caused the university serious problems in the future. On another occasion, President Oak said the spirit came to my assistance as I was editing a casebook on a legal subject. And I love the idea for all of us that not only will the spirit guide us and direct it in church matters, but also in matters of our own families and in our our professional lives. And here's President Oak sharing this example from his professional life. This casebook consisted of several hundred court opinions together with an explanatory material and text written by the editor, and my assistant and I had finished almost all the work on the book, including the necessary research to assure that these court opinions had not been reversed or overruled. But just before sending the book to the publisher, I was leafing through the manuscript, and a particular court opinion caught my attention. As I looked at it, I had profoundly an une- a profoundly uneasy feeling, and I asked my assistant to check that opinion again to see if everything was in order, He reported that it was. But in a subsequent check of the completed manuscript, I was again stopped at that case. And again, with great feelings of uneasiness, this time I went to the law library myself. And there in some newly received publications, I discovered that this case had just been reversed on appeal. 
If that opinion had been published in my casebook, it would have been a serious professional embarrassment. I was saved by the restraining power of revelation. And just as President Alan H. Oaks has sought for the Spirit in his life, so each of us should also seek for the Spirit to give us guidance and direction. Our prophet, President Nelson, is pleading for us to do that very thing, to seek for the Spirit. Elder Bruce R. McConkie once said that the motto of the saints should be to seek the Spirit. I want to share another experience that had a profound impact on my life, probably because of the timing of it. When this story was shared in General Conference years ago, my wife and I were going through an experience where we relied on the words of the council that President Oaks gave in this experience that I'm about to share, and hopefully it'll be a blessing to some of you. He said, during my life, I've had many experiences of being guided in what I should do and, and being protected from injury and also evil. The Lord's protecting care has shielded me from evil acts of others and has also protected me from surrounding, surrendering sorry, to my own worst impulses. And I enjoyed that protection one warm summer night on the streets of Chicago. And I love the what Elder Oaks, I, I'm saying Elder Oaks now because he was Elder Oaks at the time. But I love what he says here, that I have never shared this experience in public, but I do so now because of its persuasive illustration on my subject. And by the way, the subject this evening in, in priesthood was, in the general church's priesthood session, uh, his topic was, you know, Bible stories of divine protection. He said, my, June, my wife June and I had attended a ward officer's meeting. I think we call that today a ward council. When I came to drive her home and she was accompanied by a sister we would take home on our way. This particular sister, by the way, lived in the nearby Woodlawn area, which was the territory of a gang called the Blackstone Rangers. I parked at the curb outside the sister's apartment house and accompanied her into the lobby and up the stairs to her door. June remained in the car on 61st Street. She locked all the doors and I left the keys in the ignition in case she needed to drive away. We had lived on the south side of Chicago for quite a few years and were accustomed to such precautions. You know, as President Oaks shares this experience of keys in the ignition, doors locked, you just have this idea of, of how horrible this, this place must be. But anyway, he said, or I should say dangerous, that's a better word. But back in the lobby and before stepping out into the street, I looked carefully in each direction. And by the light of a nearby streetlight, I could see that the street was deserted except for three young men walking by. I waited until they were out of sight and then walked quickly to our car. As I came to the driver's side and paused for June to unlock the door, I saw one of these young men running back towards me. He had something in his right hand, and I knew what it would be. There was no time to get into the car and drive away before he came within range. Fortunately, as June leaned across to open the door, she glanced through the back window and saw this fellow coming around the end of the car with a gun in his hand. Wisely, she did not unlock the door, but for the next two or three minutes, which seemed like an eternity, she was a horrified spectator to an event happening at her eye level just outside the driver's window. The young man pushed the gun inside my, against my stomach and said, Give me your money. I took the wallet out of my pocket and showed him it was empty. I wasn't even, a, even wearing a watch I could offer him because my watch band had broken earlier that day. I offered him some coins I had in my pocket, but he growled a rejection. Give me your car keys, he demanded. They're in the car, I told him. Tell her to open the car, he replied. For a moment, I considered the new possibilities that would present and then refused. He was furious. He jabbed me in the stomach with his gun and said, do it or I'll kill you. And then Elder Oaks makes commentary in this uh, conference talk by saying that although this happened 22 years ago, he just talks about how vivid this memory is. When I refused, the young robber repeated his demands this time emphasizing them with an angrier tone and more motion with his gun. And I remember thinking that he probably wouldn't shoot me on purpose, but if he wasn't careful in the way he kept jabbing that gun into my stomach, he might shoot me by mistake. His gun looked like a cheap one, and I was nervous about his firing mechanism. Give me your money. I don't have any. Give me your car keys. They're in the car. Tell her to open the car. I won't do it. I'll kill you if you don't. I won't do it. Inside the car, June could not hear the conversation, but she could see the action with the gun. 
and she agonized over what to do. Should she unlock the door? Should she honk the horn? Should she just drive away? Everything she considered seemed to have the possibility of making matters worse. So she just waited and prayed, and then a peaceful feeling came over her. She felt it would be all right. And then for the first time, I saw the possibility of help. From behind the robber, a city bus approached. It stopped about 20 feet away, and a passenger stepped off and scurried away. The driver looked directly at me, but I could see that he was not going to offer any further assistance. Now, what a horrible commentary. I'm just talking now uh, of a city where someone ha- is being held at gunpoint, and a bus just drive by and every, by, drives by, and everyone just kind of watches. Anyway... Back to Elder Oaks. While this was happening behind the young robber, out of his view, he became nervous and distracted. His gun wavered from my stomach until its barrel pointed slightly to my left. My my arm was already partly raised, and with a quick motion, I could seize the gun, struggle with him without the likelihood of being shot. I was taller and heavier than this young man, and at that time in my life was somewhat athletic. I had no doubt that I could prevail in a quick wrestling match if I could just get the gun out of the contest. And just as I was about to make my move, I had a unique experience. I did not see anything or hear anything, but I knew something. I knew what would happen if I grabbed that gun. We would struggle and I would turn the gun into that young man's chest. It would fire and he would die. I also understood that I must not have the blood of that young man on my conscience for the rest of my life. I relaxed as the bus pulled away, and I followed an impulse to put my right hand on his shoulder and give him a lecture. Jude and I had some teenage children at the time, so giving lectures came naturally. Look here, I said, this isn't right. What you're doing just isn't right. The next car might be a policeman, and you could get killed or sent to jail for this. With the gun back in my stomach, the young robber replied to my lecture by going through his demands for the third time. But this time his voice was subdued, and when he offered the final threat to kill me, he didn't sound persuasive. When I refused again, he hesitated for a moment, for a moment, and then stuck the gun in his pocket and ran away. And by the way, I'm sure a lot of you did not think that's how that story was going to go. Jude unlocked the door, and we drove off uttering a prayer of thanks. We had experienced the kind of miraculous protection illustrated in the Bible stories I had read as a boy. And then Elder Oak said this, I have often pondered the significance of that event in relation to the responsibilities that came to me later in my life. Less than a year after that August night, I was chosen as the president of Brigham Young University. And 14 years after that experience, I received my present calling. I am grateful that the Lord gave me the vision and strength to refrain from trusting in the arm of the flesh and to put my trust in the protecting care of our Heavenly Father. I am grateful for the Book of Mormon promise, he said to us, of the last days that the righteous need not fear. For the Lord said, I will preserve the righteous. Well, the Lord will preserve the righteous by his power. I am grateful for the protection promised to those who have kept their covenants and qualified for the blessings promised in sacred places. Now, once again, That story became very significant in our life when we came to understand that we could not have an issue with a very disturbed person in our life and just need it to fall on the sword, so to speak, and concede and let whatever happened need it to happen because fighting against this person proved to be futile. And uh, President Oaks's words were so comforting to us. The words of our living prophets, and especially the words of President Alan H. Oaks, have made a huge difference in my life. And without being too personal, there was an experience in my life back in the early to mid-1990s where my wife and I were praying over something very significant, which involved a move and a, a change of career temporarily and some other things, and it just wasn't happening. And I just wondered why. And it took really about two or three years for our prayer to eventually be answered. But part of the answer came in reading a general conference talk by President Oaks. Now, here's a true confession. 
This was about 1994, if I remember right. And I was driving in my minivan. I had taken my wife and children from Mesa, Arizona, where we lived, to the suburbs of Houston, where we were both from and where my wife's parents lived at the time. And now I was going to go back to get them like three weeks later. And part of the part of the drill there, part of the purpose of that trip was I was finishing my master's degree in counseling and just had to pound out one last class and take the final and get it done. And so I'd gone back to Mesa to do that. Anyway, and now I was, was heading back to Houston to pick up my family. Now, I don't know if you've ever driven from Mesa, Arizona to Houston, Texas, it may be one of the one of the most boring drives you'll ever see. I mean, I-10 all the way across, really not much to see. And a lot of those roads are just straight and long. And true confession, once again, I had the Ensign magazine at the time on the steering wheel of the car. And I'd read a few lines and then look up ahead, read a few lines and look up ahead. And as I read through this talk... I began to feel a very powerful spiritual experience that was happening as I was driving. In fact, I've told people many times that some of the most powerful experiences in my life spiritually haven't happened in the temple, not even in the chapel, but in my home and in my car. And I know that sounds bizarre, but I've said that to other people and they said, oh my gosh, me too. But I just had this profound experience and I realized I I was receiving as I read an answer to my prayer. I was coming to know and learn why our prayer for what we needed wasn't happening at that time. I also knew that the Lord knew me. The fact that he would reveal this to me was solid evidence for me that the Lord knew me because this was exactly what I needed to hear. So let's tune into President Oaks here. He said, Founded on our knowledge of those things, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a conviction and trust that God knows us and loves us and will hear our prayers and answer them with what is best for us. In fact, God will do more than what is best for us. He will do what is best for us and for all of Heavenly Father's children. Or in other words, sometimes what we're praying for and sometimes what we want in our lives may be great for us, but it may not be good for someone else in our life. The conviction that the Lord knows more than we do and that he will answer our prayers in the way that is best for us and for all of his other children is a vital ingredient of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he, uh, President Oak says that this experience, this doctrine is taught so well from the book The Eye of the Storm by Elder John H. Groberg. And some of you may have seen uh, this depicted in the movie that was made from In the Eye of the Storm. And here's President uh, Groberg now. We would always pray for protection, success, and good seas and wind to take us to our destination. Once I asked the Lord to bless us with a good tailwind so we could get to FOA quickly. And as we got underway, one of the older men said, Elder Groberg, I think you need to modify your prayers a little. How's that, I replied. Well, you asked the Lord for a tailwind, to take us rapidly to FOA, but if you pray for a tailwind to FOA, what about the people who are trying to come from FOA to Pengai? They are good people, and you are praying against them. Just pray for a good wind, not a tailwind. And then back to, it's still Elder, Elder Groberg here. He said, that taught me something important, that sometimes we pray for things that will benefit us, but may hurt others. We may pray for a particular type of weather, Or to preserve someone's life when that answer to our prayer may hurt someone else. That's why we must pray always in faith because we can't have true God-given faith in something that is not according to his will. And if it's according to his will, all parties will benefit. I learned to pray for a good wind and the ability to get there safely, but not necessarily a tailwind. Now in my story, and I'm trying to keep it general on some level because it is very personal but after being accepted into the utah state university doctoral program in marriage and family studies i wasn't able to get there because of my employment at the time Uh, there just wasn't a space for me to move to logan utah 
even though they were supposed to be. It just didn't quite work out, uh, which meant that we were to stay in Mesa, Arizona for one more year. Now, we didn't know that, and we were praying that that move would take place. I was anxious to start my doctorate degree so I could finish it, right, and get on with our lives. I had been in school for such a long part of our, of our married life. But a couple things happened before I found out that we weren't going to be able to move. The first one was I was called into the stake mission presidency. So a lot of you may have never heard of that before. But back in the day, there was a stake mission. And I was called into the mission presidency. When the member of the stake presidency brought me in and interviewed me, I told him that I probably couldn't accept the call because we were moving. And he said, you know what? We just felt so impressed to issue this to you. Why don't you just think about it for a little while? And I thought, well, I don't don't know really what there's to think about because I'm moving. Well, about two weeks later, we found out we weren't going to be moving for another year. And so, first of all, it worked out. And, and by the way, serving in that stake mission presidency as a young man in my 30s with other men in their 40s and 50s and 60s turned out to be an incredible opportunity of teaching and, and influence for me. I was very affected by these men and the things that they shared and their leadership, and I certainly benefited from that. And I think the Lord knew that I needed to be in that calling. The second thing that happened, probably right before also we found out that we wouldn't be moving, and I got to be really careful with this experience, but I had a girl come to me in my seminary class and ask me one day if she could talk to me during my lunch hour, and I said, sure, and she came and she brought a friend, and, and I learned from her that she had been molested by a family member, and this was a pretty intense story that she was telling me. The abuse was still ongoing. And and I told her, I said, now you know that we can't. I can't just sit on this. I have to do something with this information. And she said, I was afraid that, I was afraid of that. And and so we called the, the church office building and, and they coached us exactly on what we needed to do. And we were told that we had to call the police, which we did. <laughs> But this, once again, this was back in 1994, but within five or ten minutes, there was a policeman in my office with this girl getting all the information they needed, and that father and grandfather were, were in a local jail by that evening, and the process of healing began the, the ongoing abuse that had occurred in that family for generations had been stopped by this courageous girl who was willing to come forth. But as I thought about that experience, driving in the car on this drive and, and listening to Elder Oaks speak, I just had this awareness that I had been praying to get out of this area, to leave this area, to move, to be transferred. And these experiences reminded me that, no, you need to be where you're at right now. You're not to leave yet. And I remember thinking, really, Heavenly Father, so I need to be here in this place, in this location for another year just because of this girl who needs me? Or because of a calling in my stake? And the answer was, oh yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I love how the Lord's timetable is not ours, but also how sometimes, as Elder Groberg said, that we pray for things that will benefit us, but will hurt others. It would have been a great benefit to me and our family to leave a year earlier, but we would have missed out on a great opportunity to help and bless that girl uh, in her life who really needed some help. Now, Here's it back to President Oaks in this talk. By the way, the talk is Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Ensign, May 1994, so the April of 94 conference. We must trust him enough that we are content to accept his will, knowing that he knows what is best for us. Boy, I've learned that Heavenly Father really knows what's best for us. And that kind of faith includes trust in the Lord and it stands in contrast to many many imitations. Some people trust no one but themselves. Some put their highest trust in a friend or another family member, perhaps because they feel that person is more righteous or more wise than they. But that's not the Lord's way. He told us to put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is exactly who we should trust, is in the Savior. Another talk by President Oaks that's just a classic was Good, Better, and Best. And I still find it a relevant talk today. He said, A childhood experience introduced me to the idea that some choices are good, but others are better. 
He said, I lived for two years on a farm. We rarely went to town, and our Christmas shopping was done in the Sears Roebuck catalog, and I spent hours poring over its pages. And for the rural families of that day, catalog pages were like the shopping mall or the internet of our time. Something about the display of merchandise in the catalogs fixed itself in my mind. There were three degrees of quality, good, better, and best. For example, some men's shoes were labeled as good, $1.84, some better, $2.98, and some best, $3.45. And then President Oaks made this great observation. As we consider various choices, we should remember that it's not enough that something is good. Other choices are better, and still others are best. And even though a particular choice is more costly, it is far greater value. It's far greater value may make it the best choice of all. And then he said, consider how we use our time in the choices we make in viewing television, playing video games, surfing the internet, or reading books or magazines. Of course, it is good to view wholesome entertainment or to obtain interesting information. But not everything of that sort is worth the portion of our life we give to obtain it. Some things are better and others are best. And by the way, I interject here to say, I think as a parent, most of the choices that my wife Janie and I had to make regarding our children were probably between good, better, and best. It wasn't really good over evil or good versus bad. It was what's good, what's better, and what's best. Now, how about this one? Some of our most important choices concern family activities, exactly what I was just talking about. Many breadwinners worry that their occupations leave too little, too little time for their families. There is no easy formula for that to contest of priorities. However, I have never known of a man who looked back on his working life and said, I just didn't spend enough time with my job. No, we certainly don't say that, and definitely not on our deathbeds. And choosing how we spend time as a family, President Oak said, we should be careful not to exhaust our available time on things that are merely good and leave little time for that which is better or best. A friend took his young family on a series of summer vacation trips, including visits to memorable historic sites. And at the end of the summer, he asked his teenage son which of these good summer activities he enjoyed most. The father learned from the, uh, learned from the reply, and so did those he told of it. The thing I liked best this summer, the boy replied, was the night you and I laid on the lawn and looked at the stars and talked. And then this great comment that super family activities may be good for children, they are not always better than one-on-one time with a loving parent. Oh, I think that's such a great observation by President Oaks. And then he said this, The amount of children and parent time absorbed in the good activities of private lessons, team sports, and other school and club activities also needs to be carefully regulated. Otherwise, children will be overscheduled and parents will be frazzled and frustrated. There's certainly a time crunch in our day. I'm interjecting now. There's certainly a time crunch where we are scattered all over the place, running our children from one activity to the next and not having some of that quality time that we need so much. And then back to President Oaks. Parents should act to preserve time for family prayer, scripture study, family home meeting, and other precious togetherness, an individual one-on-one time that binds families together and fixes children's values on things of eternal worth. Parents should teach gospel priorities, through what they do with their children, he said. Now, this is where some of you may remember where President Oaks, in his talk on Good, Better, and Best, talks about the overscheduling of children and how our generation of, of children are so much busier than previous generations and the amount of time fewer and fewer families are spending eating together. In fact, family dinner time, he says, is, has declined 33%. Family meal times however, have been a strong predictor of children's academic achievement, psychological adjustment, children smoking, drinking, or using drugs. Now, this part also, I think, is really amazing. But President Oaks was talking about church and church callings and church responsibilities and church programs and just giving good counsel here on that we need to be careful that we're spending too much time with needless frills and embellishments that occupy too much time, cost too much money, and sap too much energy, kind of reminding us to get down to the basics here and weed out excessive and ineffective busyness in church programs. But then 
Think of this statement that was made in 2007. Here is a caution for families. Suppose church leaders reduce the time required by church meetings and activities in order to increase the time available for families to be together. This will not this will not achieve its intended purpose unless individual family members, especially parents, vigorously act to increase family togetherness and one-on-one time. Team sports and technology toys like video games and the internet are already winning away the time of our children and youth. Surfing the internet is not better than serving the Lord or strengthening the family. In fact, some young men and young women are skipping church youth activities or cutting family time to participate in soccer leagues or to pursue other various entertainments. Some young people are amusing themselves to death, spiritual death. Now, here's my point. Once again, this was in 2007. Doesn't it sound like as early as 2007, the church was considering reducing the three-hour church block to two hours? That's what it sounds like to me. And President Oaks is giving a caution is, suppose we do give you more time, Will you really spend it studying the gospel and anchoring your families to the Savior? And by the way, my observation, and some of you would make the observation as well, but I don't see many of our people doing that. I don't see us using that that extra hour like we could. We actually ran a survey in my own ward a few years ago asking the youth if they were really using that extra hour for Come, Follow Me and Scripture Study, and the majority of them said, no, we're not doing that. Now, I know a lot of families are trying hard to do that and doing better at that than some, but certainly we could do better. Now, another talk that I'd love to recommend to you, and it was given years ago. Gosh, it was given a long time ago. It was like in 1992 at Brigham Young University. It was a devotional, but it was called Our Strength Can Become Our Downfall. And every year in my Living Prophets class, I think I need to scrap this talk. It's time to throw it out. There's just so many other good ones but I can't because it's just so good and it's so relevant. And so what President Oaks talks about is these different areas of strength that people can develop, which can also lead to their demise if they're not careful. Careful. In fact, he says, my first example concerns Satan's efforts to corrupt a person who has an unusual commitment to one particular doctrine or commandment of the gospel. This could be an unusual talent for family history work or an extraordinary commitment to constitutional government or a special gift in the acquisition of knowledge. He says in a a memorable message given at a general conference in 1971, Elder Boyd K. Packer likened the fullness of the gospel to a piano keyboard and reminded us that a person could be attracted by one single key, such as a doctrine they wanted to hear played over and over again. And he says, some members of the church who should know better pick out a hobby key or two and tap them incessantly to the irritation of those around them. And they can dull their own spiritual sensitivities. And they lose track of the fact that there is a fullness of the gospel, which he said they actually reject in preference for a favorite note. This becomes exaggerated and distorted, leading them away into apostasy. Now, once again, think, think of the relevance of that as we have so many social issues today and people are pounding and pounding on one of those 88 piano keys and not realizing that we have a fullness of the gospel that includes all 88 keys. This reminds me of a ward that we lived in years ago where there was a couple who were just experts at emergency preparation. And every year we had a fifth Sunday meeting and this couple would come out and talk about emergency preparation. And that was the gospel for them. That was that was the full gospel but we never saw them the other 51 weeks of the year. They never came out uh, and joined us in worship, but their whole key was emergency preparation. I think many people are pounding keys today with political and social issues and not realizing that, look, we've got a fullness of the gospel here. Let's, let's pay attention to everything. Here's another one. Satan will also attempt to cause our spiritual downfall through tempting us to misapply a spiritual gift, he said. And then he told this story. A man who lived in a community in Utah had a mighty gift of healing, and people sought him out for blessings, many coming from outside of his ward and stake. In time, he almost made a profession from giving blessings. 
And as part of his travels to various communities, he would come to the apartments and the dorms at BYU soliciting blessings, asking people if they wanted blessings. Now, this professional healer who forgot that lesson, what's the lesson? That a spiritual gift is given to the benefit of the children of God, not to magnify the, prom- the prominence or the ego of the person who has the gift. This professional healer who forgot that lesson, President Oak said, gradually lost the spirit and was eventually excommunicated from the church. Here's another one. There is great strength, President Oak says, in being highly focused on goals. We've all seen the favorable fruits of that focus. But an intense focus on goals can cause a person to forget the importance of obtaining those goals of righteous means. And then he shared this example of serving in a stake presidency. And a man actually brags to President Oaks about the way he had managed to preserve his goal for perfect attendance at their stake leadership meetings. He was required to report for his shift work at the time of one of our stake meetings. And when the employer denied his request for permission to attend this church meeting, the man told me with pride that he had called in sick so that he could come anyway. President Oak said, I kept an eye on that man after that. I wondered if he would steal money to pay tithing. And he says, you may think that is an extreme example, but it illustrates the point that I want to make that we can't be so concerned about our goals that we overlook the necessary the necessity of using righteous means to attain them. Another area where our strength can become our downfall concerns finances. We're commanded to give to the poor. But, President Oak said, could the fulfillment of that fundamental Christian obligation be carried to excess? And he said, I believe it can. In fact, I've seen examples of it. And perhaps you have seen cases where persons fulfilled that duty to such an extent that they impoverished their own families by expending resources of property or time that were needed for family members. He quotes Doctrine and Covenants section 10 verse 4, do not run faster or labor more than you have strength and means provided to enable you to translate in that case. This reminds me of years ago in an area where we lived, I was doing some counseling work and there was a couple who had come in and one of her concerns, the wife's concerns, really fit this perfectly. They lived in a home that had some massive leaks in the roof. In fact, they actually had Home Depot buckets in their kitchen that would catch the water from the snow melt or when it would rain. Uh, And these buckets, yeah, were collecting water. Her children hadn't had new clothes in a long time. In fact, one of their sons was growing. He was going through this growth spurt. And his, you know, we used to call them floods, you know, but the bottom of his pant line was actually about six inches up on his shins but this husband would always plead that they didn't have money to fix the roof or to buy the children clothes but what he did have money for is he paid one thousand dollars a month in fast offerings and his wife was just so upset because she felt that that money should be used to take care of their family and he disagreed with it and i think president oaks would tell him hey take care of your family first and then give give what you can to the church Here's another example of a strength becoming a downfall from President Oaks. An unusual degree of faith in God, a genuine spiritual gift and strength, can be distorted so as to seriously distract us from scholarly pursuits. And he just gives the example that have known persons who began their academic studies with great momentum, but as time went by, they didn't continue to invest the time they needed in their studies. Because they, de- they supposed they had developed such great faith that they simply did their church work, the Lord would bless them to achieve their academic object- objective. Now, let's use that and ap- apply it in different arenas because it's not just academics. It could be professionally. There's all kinds of variations of this. And President Oaks talks about it where people may have a desire to excel in a church calling, but maybe they neglect their family. Maybe they neglect their studies. Maybe they uh, neglect their personal sorry, their professional life and professional experiences. And then he shared this example of when the Provo Temple was built in 1972 and President Harold B. Lee was the the president of the church at the time and President Oaks was the president of BYU. And he said, you know, President Lee warned me. He was really concerned that now that the temple was basically right on the BYU campus, that some students at BYU would attend the temple so often 
that they would neglect their studies or buy into the false view that, hey, if I'm going to the temple every day, the Lord will make sure I have an A in every class. And so, once again, this idea President Lee was urging from President Oaks of just be balanced. Just have balance in your life. And I think that's what this what this talk is emphasizing is we've got to be balanced and be practical. Another favorite talk of mine that President Oaks gave years ago was on the topic of revelation. And he talked about a concept that I'm not even sure was said said much. There wasn't much said about it early on, but it became a a topic for sure over the years, and that's the idea of stewardship and revelation. That only the president of the church receives revelation to guide the entire church. That only the stake president receives revelation for the special guidance of the stake. And the person who receives revelation for the ward is the bishop. And I would like to say now, that in, and for the family, mothers and fathers receive revelation to guide and direct their families. When a person purports to receive a revelation for another person outside of their stewardship, such as a church member who claims to have a revelation to guide the entire church, or a person who claims to have a revelation to guide another person over whom he or she has no presiding authority according to the order of the church, you can be sure that those revelations are not of God. Satan is a great deceiver, and he is the source of some of these spurious revelations. And uh, there's all kinds of variations of that. And so here's another, uh, another continuation of that thought, that if a revelation is outside the limits of stewardship, you know it's not from the Lord and you're not bound by it. I've heard of cases where a young man told a young woman she should marry him because he had received a revelation that she was to be his eternal companion. If this is a true revelation, it will be confirmed directly to the woman if she seeks to know. In the meantime, she is under no obligation to heed that revelation. She should seek her own guidance and make up her own mind. The man can receive revelation to guide his own actions, but he cannot properly receive revelation to, to direct hers. Why? Because she's outside of, of his stewardship. You know, one of the variations I see of that now that's so common, back in the old days, it was what President Oaks is describing, meaning that we would have young men telling young women, hey, I received a revelation, I'm to marry you, so here we go. I don't see that happening so much anymore, and I think part of it is the church members have become so educated in this area. It's wonderful. And so many of our sisters have been on missions themselves, and they, they know the process of receiving revelation. But what I do see now is a couple who will come to me and say, hey, what do we do? We are so in love. We can't wait to be married. We both have received answers that we're to do it, to be married in the temple. But one of our parents said that they've received a revelation that we're not to do that. And by the way, that, boy, we can talk about that principle for an hour of, you know, how does that work and what does happen when parents receive a revelation contrary to that which they're their young single adult children are receiving and not really sure I want to delve into that today but certainly would be willing to do it at one time I have some ideas on that and then this continuation that the spirit of the Lord is not likely to give us revelation on matters that are trivial I once heard of a young woman in testimony meeting praise the spirituality of her husband indicating that he had submitted every question to the Lord she told of how he accompanied her shopping and would not even choose between different brands of canned vegetables without making his selection a matter of prayer. And Elder Oak said, that strikes me as improper. I believe the Lord expects us to use the intelligence and experience he has given us to make these kind of choices. Now, I, I love that too. And I always wonder and worry that when I do see people getting into that type of religion, that type of worship or practice, maybe that's a better word, I'm just worried that they're not anchored the right way and they may be led astray. And sure enough, I know of a couple from years ago that did that exact thing, that they were literally praying over canned vegetables and uh, they're no longer in the church right now. They just got way off into the weeds. So let's be careful and stay in the mainstream. Another core doctrine I've heard President Oaks talk about, or I should say a principle, is that of timing. He said that faith means trust, to trust in God's will, to trust in his way of doing things, but also to trust in his timetable. 
and that we shouldn't impose our timetable on his. And then he quoted Elder Neil A. Maxwell, who once said that the issue for us is trusting God enough to trust also his timing. If we can truly believe he has our welfare at heart, may we not let his plans unfold as he thinks best. The same is true with the second coming, with all those matters wherein our faith needs to include faith in the Lord's timing for us personally, not just in his overall plans and purpose. President Oaks even quoted Elder Maxwell in saying that since faith in the timing of the Lord may be tried, let us learn to say not only thy will be done, but also thy timing be done. That's kind of an interesting thought. And then President Oak shares some of his own experiences. He said, when I was a young man, I thought I would serve a mission. I graduated from high school in June of 1950 and thousands of miles away. One week after that high school graduation, a North Korean army crossed the 38th parallel and our country was at war. I was 17 years old, but as a member of the Utah National Guard, I was soon under orders to prepare for mobilization and active service. Suddenly for me and many other Young men of my generation, the full-time mission we had planned for or assumed was not to be. Another example, I served as the president of BYU for nine years. I was released. A few months later, the governor of the state appointed me to a 10-year term on the Utah Supreme Court. I was 48 years old. My wife, June, and I tried to plan out the rest of our lives. We wanted to serve a full-time mission that neither of us had been privileged to serve. We planned that I would serve 20 years on the state Supreme Court, and then at the end of two 10-year terms, when I would be nearly 69 years old, I would retire from the Supreme Court, and we would submit our missionary papers, and we'd serve our mission as a couple. I had my 69th birthday last summer and was vividly reminded of that important plan. If things had gone as we planned, I would now be submitting papers to serve a mission with my wife, June. However, four years after we made that plan, I was called into the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, something we never dreamed would happen. And then, of course, later, his, when he was 66, he says, when I was 66, my wife June died of cancer. And then two years later, I married Kristen McMain, the eternal companion who now stands at my side. How fundamentally different my, my life is than I had sought to plan. My professional life has changed. My personal life has changed, but the commitment I made to the Lord to put him first in my life and to be ready for whatever he would have me do has carried me through these changes of eternal importance. Oh, I just love that from President Oaks. There's such, there's such great strength and power in his words and in his teachings. Perhaps I can conclude this section on the teachings of President Alan H. Oaks with just a couple of stories. One of them is interesting to me, and this is, you know, there are rumors in the church, as we know, and and who knows how they originate. But for many years, I was told that Dallin H. Oaks was called to be an apostle at a Mexican restaurant in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm so grateful for a book that helps us straighten all that out, because that has a couple partial truths in it, but for the most part, it's a little off. So on Friday evening, April the 6th, 1984, this comes from Turley's book, Dallin was in Tucson, Arizona, where he and two others sat at, 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 as moot court judges at the University of Arizona Law School. And when the competition ended, the three judges went to a Mexican restaurant for dinner and afterwards an awards presentation. And during festivities before dinner, cocktails for others, nachos for me, Dallin wrote, He was called on the phone near the restaurant's cash register. I went to the cash register, Dallin recalled, and a mariachi band was wanging away in the background. It was a chaotic scene. Now, I'm going to take a pause here to let you know that I was able several years ago to interview one of the children of President Oaks, and he told this part of the story, that there was a phone call by the church operator on that Friday evening to the Oaks home first. And this particular son answered the phone and was asked, hey, can we speak to your dad? Well, he's not here. Uh, Okay, when will he be home? Well, he won't be home for a while. He's out of town. Wait, where is he out of town? In Tucson, Arizona. Okay, can we talk to your mom? No, she's not here. Okay, do you know where he is in Tucson, Arizona? No, I don't. I just know he went to the law school. 
All right, so now the church operator is going to get on the phone, start to track down President Oaks. They know that he's in Tucson at the University of Arizona somewhere, probably the law school. On Friday night in the law library, the phone rings, the public phone. Luckily, a student answers it. Hey, we're looking for Dallin H. Oaks. Dallin Oaks, would you know where he is? Oh, I actually heard they were going to a Mexican restaurant tonight. Well, do you know which one? No. Can you imagine? I mean, how many Mexican restaurants are there in Tucson, Arizona? And on a Friday night, trying to find him, talk about a needle in a haystack. Someone was leading that church operator to be able to uh, locate him. Well, so Dallin is listening to that mariachi band. He goes to the cash register. He takes that phone call. It's President Gordon B. Hinckley. And Dallin said, I cannot imagine how he found me there. He wondered in his journal, especially since, as he learned from the law school's dean, the school switchboard was closed. In any case, President Hinckley asked Dallin to call him when he got back to his hotel. Dallin was accustomed to contact with senior church leaders and went on out to dinner without concern, though curious about what could be so serious that he would phone me at such a busy time. What's the busy time? It's general conference. After that dinner, as Dallin was being driven back to his hotel, he finally had time to focus on what President Hinckley might want and wondered if this could be a calling. Though that was possible, he thought, it's not likely since I had received no inklings or premonitions of such a thing recently. He knew it was General Conference weekend, but he wrote two days later, I was blissfully unaware that this had any significance for my future. When Dallin got to the hotel, he did phone President Hinckley as requested. And after a quick inquiry about his worthiness, President Hinckley was direct. He told Dallin that he was called to be a member of the, of the Council of the Twelve. I gasped, Elder Oak said. Oh, it seemed unreal. I heard him say how this would change my life. My life, President Oak said, is in the hands of the Lord, and my career is also in the hands of his servants. I thought that was just an interesting story. Yep, it wasn't Chicago, it was Tucson, and it wasn't that he was called in the Mexican restaurant. He was called once he got home at a hotel, but the call was issued over the phone, and I'm so grateful that President Oaks was in a position to, to accept that calling. Maybe I'll just add this on as well. I just can't help myself here, but in one of that, that interview with one of President Oaks's children, this particular child called his dad the Forrest Gump of the church because he said he was just always in the hot spots in the world. If something was going on, he seemed to be there. He was president, for example. He was present and testified at the, at the Robert Bjork hearings that made national news. He was in Washington, D.C. when the Watergate scandal broke. In fact, he actually recommended Leon Jaworski to be the lead prosecutor. He was in Berlin when the wall came tumbling down. He was in Hong Kong when the uprising of Tiananmen Square took place. He consulted with the Soviet Union when they rewrote their constitution. He clerked for Earl Warren, and he actually knew personally Mr. Rogers. That's pretty cool. And then the son said this. He said there were two military units in Provo. One went to the, to the Korea, the other didn't. The old course out, courthouse in Provo had two staircases, and one was on the right side and the other was on the left. And when Elder Oaks registered for the draft, he did it by going up one of those staircases. Well, it just turned out the way that they were doing things at that, on that particular day, whoever went up, let's say, the right staircase were all called up to Korea. And whoever went up the left staircase were not called up. And obviously, President Oaks, and I'm, I'm just kind of making up the, was it the right or the left? I don't know that. But he went up the staircase where no one who went up that staircase was called up. And this particular son said, I just always wondered how different my dad's life would have turned out had he gone up the other staircase. But it's just a reminder that the Lord is in charge of the details, and the Lord knows our lives, and he's involved in our lives, and he orchestrates events. And he protects us, and he guides and directs. And in the case of President Alan H. Oaks, the Lord was there every step of the way to nudge, to direct, to lead. And that's why President Alan H. Oaks is where he is today in the First Presidency of the Church. I sustain this man as a prophet, seer, and revelator. I have been blessed in my life because of his teachings, 
the principles and doctrines that he's taught, but I've also been blessed because of the way that he has lived his life with integrity, with humility, with kindness and love and respect for all, not criticizing anyone, but just edifying everyone that he has come in contact with. I'm so grateful for him because he leads me to the Savior. And I share this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.